How many of you uh, watched the PBS series last month on the uh, national parks? Anybody catch that series? It was, there were a lot of fabulous visual images in that series of some of America's most beautiful scenery. And the documentary also gave a very interesting perspective on the history of the national parks. Did you know that uh, Jim Grinnell, Jim Grinnell's, let's see, it's his, that's a cousin of his grandfather, of Jim's grandfather, was a man by the name of George Bird Grinnell. If you watch this series, he was mentioned in that series. Uh, he was a part of the original national parks movement. There's George Bird Grinnell. Do you see the family resemblance? <laughs> George Bird Grinnell also founded the Audubon Society and even has a glacier and a lake named after him in Glacier National Park in Montana where he was, uh, where he was instrumental in getting that national park started and also in the national parks movement. The documentary featured Jim's ancestor prominently, so every time they talked about him, I said, I, I know one of his, um, what do they call it? Descendants. There you go. Thank you. Had a little brain freeze there for a moment. Now, the primary instigator of the idea of national parks was a man named John Muir. And John Muir was a man who loved the wilderness. He loved the mountains. As the program quoted him about his love for the great outdoors, I found myself really resonating with some of what he said and some of the things that he wrote. The first episode of this program was actually called The Scripture of Nature. I've had several very deeply spiritual experiences in natural settings, Beaver Lake in Arkansas and in the Rocky Mountains. I love going to these places. I do, in fact, feel a connection with the Lord in these settings. John Muir once wrote this. He said, a few minutes ago, every tree was excited, bowing to the roaring storm, waving, swirling, tossing their branches in glorious enthusiasm like worship. But though to the outer ear those trees are now silent, their songs never cease. Well, hearing that quote made me think of the passage in Isaiah. It says, you'll go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. It also made me think of Jesus telling the Pharisees. You remember uh, right um, at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he told the Pharisees because they were complaining that they were worshiping Jesus. You need to make them, they need to make them stop. And Jesus said, well, if they keep quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. So while John Muir said and wrote some things about nature and creation that I can really relate to and appreciate, he, he said some other things that are quite problematic. These kinds of things, some of these other things that he said and others said were echoed ad nauseum in the series by some contemporary thinkers and commentators who had some new age leanings, so much so that I eventually kind of gave up on the series. It's too much space on my DVR. Anyway, John Muir wrote this. Let me give you an example. We all flow from one fountain soul. All are expressions of one love. God does not appear and flow out only from the narrow chinks and round board wells here and there in favored races and places, but he flows in grand undivided currents, shoreless and boundless over creeds and forms and all kinds of civilizations and people and beasts, saturizing all and fountainizing all. Well, I got to tell you, without getting off on a little bit of a tangent here, that sounds like pantheism to me. Pantheism, in a nutshell, makes no distinction, or at very best, a, 
an unclear distinction between the creator and the creature. According to pantheism, God is not transcendent. And in practical terms, God is in all and all is part of God. That kind of thinking inevitably leads to a worship of nature, a worship of creation. And watching this program, I thought a lot about how natural beauty, about how God's creation can lead to worship. We've, we've all kind of experienced that, haven't we? We've been in a place where the beauty was so incredible and it just led us to worship God. For me, it wells up in a worship of the Creator God who made it all. For others, including John Muir and many people today, it leads not to a worship of the Creator and all the wonderful beauty around us, but it leads to a worship of creation itself. It is indeed a form of idolatry. Now, idolatry is not a word you just hear bandied about much anymore. Just a few weeks ago, we heard it when Jim Grinnell spoke, and he spoke about why they won't believe. He mentioned idolatry is one reason that many people cannot seem to come to Christ. All of these things, as I was thinking about it, reminded me of Paul's explanation of what idolatry looked like and the inevitable downward spiral that begins when we glorify or worship things rather than the creator of those things. If you have your Bibles this morning, you might want to turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to spend some time in this passage here, beginning with verse 21. Romans 1, beginning with verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now, when we think of worshipping idols, we also think two of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, beginning with verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So when we think of idolatry in a biblical sense, we tend to think of images, objects, golden calves, things like that. As a result, sometimes I think we find the idea of idolatry a little bit easier to dismiss because we can't relate to those things in our modern day. Though, of course, there are some cultures where literal, physical idols do still exist. Not too many of us have any neighbors that worship golden calves. My guess is, however, that we all know people who worship idols. Whether they see or whether we see it like that or not. But let's look at this passage again from Romans 1, and let's see if we can legitimately apply what Paul is saying here to our day and time. Now, I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I think it gives another little bit of a nuance of understanding, beginning with Romans 1.21. Yes, they knew God, 
but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. There are a few key phrases here we want to look at, and the first is in verse 21. They wouldn't worship, they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. Now, why is this important? To worship God is one thing, but to worship Him as God is critical. Because when we do that, we're acknowledging his claim to us, his claim to creation, his claim to our allegiance and our obedience. When we worship God as God, we're proclaiming his greatness, we're proclaiming his sovereignty, we're acknowledging his creation, we're acknowledging his right to do in our lives what is best, whatever he wills. You know what we're saying? We're saying, yes, Lord, you're in charge. You're the one who knows what's good for me. You're the one who knows what's not so good for me. You're the one I bow to in every area of my life. You're the most important thing there is. That's what it means when we worship God as God. You're more important than anything you make and even more important than anything you might provide for me to enjoy. And this worship isn't just what we do in the first part of our service here on Sunday morning. Singing praises to God is only one kind of worship. Giving thanks is an act of worship. A week from Thursday, we'll be marking Thanksgiving Day. Today, set aside to remember that every good and perfect gift is from God. A day to remember that there's nothing we have that we did not receive. Paul's telling us that when we don't worship God as God and we don't give thanks, when we don't acknowledge God as the source of everything that's good in our lives, it leads to foolishness. It leads to darkened minds, and eventually it leads to idolatry. That takes us to the second key phrase in verse 25 near the end of this passage where Paul tells us that they traded the truth about God for a lie So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself. Note there we see the words worshiped and served. Interestingly, the word for serve here is sometimes also translated worship. These words are often in Scripture synonymous, both being used to express both inward reverence and outward worship. Tim Keller writes this, Whatever we worship, we will serve. For worship and service are always inextricably bound together. We are covenantal beings. We enter into covenant service with whatever most captures our imagination and heart. It ensnares us. So every human personality, community, thought form, and culture 
will be based on some ultimate concern or some ultimate allegiance either to God or to some God substitute. Individually, we will ultimately look either to God or to success, romance, family, status, popularity, beauty, or something else to make us feel personally significant and secure and to guide our choices. Culturally, we will ultimately look to either God or to the free market, the state, the elites, the will of the people, science and technology, military might, human reason, racial pride, or something else to make us corporately significant and secure and to guide our choices. Again, if we tend to think of worship as only the songs that we sing to God, we're missing an important point here. So what does worship mean? Well, it encompasses a lot of things that we're not going to look closely at this morning. But here's one definition. One definition says, worship is homage rendered to God, which it is sinful or it is idolatry to render to any created being. So what's homage? Well, the roots of this word refer to a feudal ceremony by which a man acknowledges himself the vassal, that's the slave, of a lord. Did you know that? That that's what homage was? That's the root of this word? And it's also the relationship between a feudal lord and his vassal. Now, the way we tend to think of the word homage is the second definition, which is an expression of high regard or respect often used with the word pay. You've heard the phrase pay homage to somebody or something. It's something that shows respect or attests to the worth or influence of another. These definitions, I think, shed new light on what idolatry is. Worship is paying homage to, ultimately acknowledging the lordship of someone or something. It's tacitly or implicitly or explicitly saying to whatever it is that we are idolizing, you're the most important thing in my life. Of course, we don't say those words, but that's what we're doing in our heart attitude. When we sing to our great God, when we sing on Sunday mornings, when we sing in worship by ourselves, whatever, to the King of Kings, when we sing a song like, you are Lord of creation and Lord of my life, or when we sing, you are my all in all. We remember those songs. Those are worthy things to sing. That's explicit and that's proper worship of the only one who truly deserves worship. But when we devote our lives to something, or maybe to someone, or we devote our money to something, devote our time to something more than to God, and I'm not talking just about a simple measurement of time here, I'm talking about a hard attitude, what we're doing is we're implicitly saying, you're in charge, you know best. We might as well sing to that created thing, you are my all in all. We might as well sing to that created thing, you are Lord of my life. Idolatry is worshiping or paying homage to something other than God, something that's ultimately a thing or a person that he created. When seen like this, it begins to hit home a little bit more, doesn't it? It helps us to relate to this just a little bit more than those golden calves that we have a harder time relating to. This way of looking at idolatry makes it a little bit harder to just think it's something pagans did in the Old Testament or Hindus do today. That's why I think it's not a stretch at all to say what the English Standard Version Study Bible tells us, that the root sin is the failure to value God above all things so that he is not honored and praised as he should be. Idolatry is the fundamental sin. 
I also think it's why there's truth in what the church father Tertullian said. He said, the principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. There's a reason why the very first commandment is that we shall have no other gods before the one true God. There's a reason it's first. This Romans passage, of course, is not the only biblical passage that warns us against idolatry. The Old Testament is full of stories and warnings about idolatry. And you might think, well, this is just an Old Testament thing, but it's not. It's not just an Old Testament theme. In addition to the clear warning that we're looking at this morning in Romans, there are many other passages in the New Testament. There's Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and at the end of that passage, it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. In Ephesians 5, 5, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And then the admonition in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Here's what one commentator wrote about the 1 John passage that we just read. In a world full of alluring objects, there was danger then, as there is at all times, that the affections should be fixed on other objects than the supreme God, and that what is due to him should be withheld. It may be added in the conclusion of the exposition of this epistle that the same caution is as needful for us as it was for those to whom John wrote. We are not in danger, indeed, of bowing down to idols or of engraving in the grossest forms or engaging in the grossest forms of idol worship, but we may be in no less danger than they to whom John wrote of substituting other things in our affections in the place of the true God and of devoting to them the time and the affection which are due to him. The world, its wealth and pleasures and honors, we may love with a degree of attachment such as even an idolater would hardly show to his idol gods. There is practical idolatry all over the world, in nominally Christian lands as well as among the heathen, in families that acknowledge no god but wealth and fashion, in the hearts of multitudes of individuals who would scorn the thought of worshiping at a pagan altar. And it is even to be found in the heart of many a one who professes to be acquainted with the true God and to be an heir of heaven. God should have the supreme place in our affections. The love of everything else should be held in strict subordination to the love of him. He should be submitted to at all times as having a right to command and control us be obeyed in all the expressions of his will, by his word, by his providence, and by his spirit. Be so loved that we shall be willing to part without a murmur with the dearest object of affection when he takes it from us. Sobering thoughts about idolatry, and it brings it again a little bit closer to home than the golden calf that we often think of when we think of idols. How many Americans are defined by their idols. They're defined maybe by the cars they drive. They're defined perhaps by the houses that they own or the clothes that they wear. Now, of course, these things in and of themselves aren't necessarily idols. They're just 
things. For something to be an idol, there has to be an attitude of the heart that's attached to it. In and of itself, nothing is really an idol. It's how we view it. It's how important it is to us. It's how much we devote ourselves to it. Seen this way, we can see how many things can become idols, can't we? Even good things. Preacher named Mark Driscoll said, Idols are good things turned into God things, little g, and they become bad things. We, as Paul said to the Romans, sometimes exchange the truth of God for a lie. We take things that maybe in and of themselves are good things or things that we can legitimately enjoy or use in their proper perspective and we turn them into gods with a little g. Of course, it's easy for us to see idols everywhere in our culture. There are music idols like Michael Jackson or Miley Cyrus. Can you think of any better description of the behavior of the legions of Michael Jackson fans at his, at his funeral than devotion or worship. Wasn't that what they were doing? It was devotion or worship. When his face is on your t-shirt and when you listen to his music for hours, when you give large sums of money to him personally, when his death causes you to go into a steep depression and you have a collection of memorabilia, I think if you walked in from another culture, you would say that's a very, very curious God that they've chosen. We even have a TV show allowing us to vote for our favorite American idol. Our idols aren't images. They're not golden calves. They're more likely to be someone or something that occupies the place of God in your life. You know, maybe not always. Maybe just sometimes. Maybe just sometimes. An idol gives us what we should only seek and can only truly find in God. It gives you a measure of identity. It gives you a measure of meaning, value, purpose, love, significance, or security. If you worship alcohol, you can become an alcoholic. If you worship food, you can become a glutton. If you worship pleasure, you can become a sex or a drug addict. But these words, alcoholic, glutton, addict, don't adequately recognize the foundation of these issues, the foundation of these issues is idolatry. Someone or something is more important, has greater value in one's life than does God. The other irony is that idols will let you down. Idols will always let you down. God is faithful. God is eternal. God is sovereign. But the idols we worship are not any of those things. Idols will inevitably let us down. They'll inevitably disappoint us because they are false gods. Those who have made money their idols sure have had a few tough years, haven't they, by the lack of faithfulness of their idol. idol. This morning, Barb and I were driving back from visiting Barb's folks in Arkansas, and we drove through West Siloam Springs past the casino about 7 a.m. this morning, and there were probably 50 or 60 cars in there. I wonder how many of those people at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning, were being disappointed by their idol of wealth or money. Those who make sexual pleasure their idol are always disappointed because they're never satisfied. Those who have made power their idol will inevitably be out of power someday. But there are also more insidious 
more subtle things we Christians deal with. So many things that are or can be good in and of themselves can be idols too. We can make ministry an idol. Think about that. Ministry is a good thing. We're encouraged to minister to one another. We can put it in the place of God himself, making it more important than the author and creator of that ministry. Work's a good thing. We can make that an idol too, more important than the one who provides it. Our marriages are ordained of God, and they're a good thing, but our spouse cannot, uh, cannot, our spouse cannot replace the king of kings in our heart's devotion. Our children are of great value, a source of wonderful blessing and joy, but we cannot be more devoted to our children than we are to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So it begs the question, what's a follower of Christ to do? If this is a reality in our lives, I think the first thing we must do is recognize that idolatry can be a propensity that we all have to deal with in some way, shape, or form at some point in our life. That's because it's part of the sin nature that's being put to death as we are being sanctified in Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness means desiring something other than God in the wrong way. But what does that mean, in the wrong way? Idolatry will destroy our relationship with God, and it will destroy our relationship with people. John Piper writes that all human relational problems, from marriage and family to friendship to neighbors to classmates to colleagues, all of them are rooted in various forms of idolatry. That is, wanting things other than God in wrong ways. Now, John Piper put together what I think is a helpful list of ways that we can determine what makes something we can legitimately enjoy perhaps turn toward idolatry. Let's consider these for a moment. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it is forbidden by God. This is the easiest one, I think, to grasp. For example, adultery and fornication, stealing and lying, they're forbidden by God. And so even though sometimes people seem to enjoy those things, or else we wouldn't do them. Of course, no one sins out of duty. But such a pleasure is a sign of idolatry. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's disproportionate to the worth of what is desired. When we have great desire, overwhelming desire, for things that aren't that great, that's a sign that we're beginning to make these things idols. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it is not permeated with gratitude. We see this in this passage in Romans chapter 1 as well. When our enjoyment of something tends to make us not think of God, it's moving toward idolatry. But if that enjoyment gives rise to the feeling of gratefulness to God, we're being protected from idolatry. So I'm not against enjoyment. Hear, hear me. Hear me say that this morning. I'm not against enjoyment. Enjoyment in and of itself is not idolatry. The grateful feeling that we don't deserve this gift or this enjoyment, but have it freely by God's grace is evidence that God is checking idolatry in our hearts. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it does not see in God's gift that God himself is to be more desired than the gift. If the gift isn't awakening a sense that God, the giver, is better than the gift, it can be becoming an idol. I think this harkens back to where we began this morning, considering the worship of God's creation becoming idolatry rather than pointing us 
to the Creator. Enjoyment is also becoming idolatrous when it's starting to feel like a right and our delight is becoming a demand. It may be that the delight is right. It may be that another person ought to give you this delight. It may be right to tell them this, but when it rises to the level of angry demands, idolatry is also rising. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it draws us away from our duties. When we find ourselves spending time pursuing an enjoyment, knowing that there are other things, other people that should be getting our attention, we may be moving into idolatry. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it awakens a sense of pride that we can experience this delight while others can't. Think about this for a second. This is especially true of delights in religious things, like prayer and Bible reading and ministry, or even spiritual gifts. It's wonderful to enjoy holy things, God's wonderful blessings, but it's idolatrous to feel proud that we can. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's oblivious or callous to the needs and desires of others. Holy enjoyment is aware of others' needs, and it may temporarily leave a good, even righteous pleasure to help another person have that same kind of righteous pleasure. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when its loss ruins our trust in the goodness of God. Well, first I have to say that there can be sorrow at loss without being idolatrous. doesn't necessarily mean. But when, when sorrow threatens our confidence in God, it signals that perhaps the lost thing was becoming an idol. Not necessarily, but possibly. And finally, enjoyment's becoming idolatrous when its loss paralyzes us emotionally so that we can't relate lovingly to other people. This is the horizontal effect of losing confidence in God. Again, great sorrow is no sure sign of idolatry. So don't hear me say that. Jesus had great sorrow. But when desire is denied and the effect is the emotional inability to do what God calls us to do, then the warning signs of idolatry may be flashing and we need to pay attention to them. The reformer John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. Sometimes they're IDLE factories too, but in this case, he's talking about what we're talking about this morning. Augustine said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped. So we must ask the question, who or what is our God? The answer is found in what do we love the most? What do we seek out the most? What do we give most of our resources to, our time, our physical, material resources? What do we care about the most? What do we worship the most? Our gods can be our careers. Our gods can be our bank accounts. Our gods can be the way we look. Our gods can be our position in life. Our gods can be our position in ministry. Our gods can be our education or our degrees. Our gods can be our influence. Our gods can be our power. It can even be something that is considered intrinsically good, yet you allow it to dominate your life more than God, such as your marriage or your family, 
Your God is whatever you allow to control you to be the ultimate guide to decision-making, the place of your supreme loyalty, and the source of your self-worth. Someone once said that today's idols are more in the self than on the shelf. We can see that too, can't we? Isn't that true? Don't we see that in our culture? Don't we, if we're honest with ourselves, wrestle with that ourselves? We tend to make ourselves the top priority, what we want, what we desire, what we think we need, not God. In many ways, we can say that the number one idol today is self. We are the personal agents who vie for the glory that belongs to God alone. We are the ones who foolishly boast of power by which we try to defy God's sovereignty. Idols are merely manifestations of our self-worship. Satan and the world offer, and we selfishly employ everything under the sun to worship ourselves instead of offering ourselves in generous worship to God. We cannot root out idolatry from our hearts simply or only by repentance, although that's a good start. We can't do it simply by deciding to live differently, though the recognition of our propensity for idolatry and the decision to do something about that is also a good step in the right direction. But turning from idols is not less than those two things, but it's also far more. Setting the mind and hearts on things above where your life is hid with Christ in God, as it says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, means appreciation, rejoicing, and resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails joyful worship, a sense of God's reality in prayer. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace the idols of your heart. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. So this morning, as we close, I want to pray together with you. Let's pray that, first of all, God will help us be honest with ourselves. Because if we're blind to anything, we're blind to our own idols. Let's, help, let's ask that God will help us identify those created things we might have a tendency to worship, and to serve. And let's pray as we decide to put away our idols and to put God in his rightful place as the only one who's worthy of our worship and our service. And let's worship and serve God first and foremost and only. Amen? Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are prone we have a propensity toward idolatry. Father, we know that part of the reason for this is because you create so many wonderful things for us to enjoy. And Father, we push past the boundaries of those enjoyments and choose to take those enjoyments and turn them into worship or idolatry. Father, help us to always be mindful of those created things that we worship or we serve rather than the creator of those things. Keep our minds open and willing to receive the conviction of your Holy Spirit in this arena of our lives. Help us to see these things, Father. And Father, as we see these things, we do want to decide 
We do want to repent of our idolatry, but we also want to replace these things. We want to set our minds on things above. We want to replace these things with righteous worship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who created these things for us to enjoy. Help us, dear Lord. Help us with this part of our sin nature and how difficult it can be. Lord, we give this to you, and we ask you to change us and mold us and shape us into the image and likeness of Christ and help us to put away our idols. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.